Inside the Post-Dispatch. Hi, I'm Beth O'Malley with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, digital content editor. Hi, everybody. I am Liz Miller, and I'm also a digital content editor at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And you're listening to Inside the Post-Dispatch. Liz and I are very excited for our second episode. We are going to have Josh Renaud on later to talk about uh, Governor Parson and the accusations that Josh faced that he had hacked a public website owned by the state of Missouri, which I'm sorry, I I don't know if you can hear my eye roll while I say that. (laughs) Yeah, well, Josh has really been through the ringer with this one, but he showed such composure and honestly compassion in the face of um, a really stressful uh, and difficult time. So I know our listeners are going to enjoy that conversation. But first, as we always do, uh, we're going to chat about some of the stories that other reporters in our newsroom have been working on recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and first up is, I have to say, one of the more controversial topics that we've probably both been, you know, satellite coveraging <laughs> uh, in the past few years, five years more, maybe uh, the loop trolley. I can hear the groans now. Yeah, we're going to talk about the loop trolley. Uh, Last week, Post-Dispatch reporter Mark Schlinkman, who has followed this um, trolley. I don't, I'm trying to think. He's kept track of it. Oh, he's kept track of it. There we go. There we go. Um, He reports, sorry. (laughs) going to take a moment. Yeah, bad puns are really my wheelhouse. I'm so sorry. He reported last week that leaders of the Bi-State Development Agency, which runs Metrolink and the buses in St. Louis area, uh, decided to operate the loop trolley. Yeah, and obviously this is a project that's been dormant um, since shutting down at the end of 2019. And even prior to that had had so many, again, to make a bad pun, roadblocks um, in its development. Um, Yeah, (laughs) drum snare, please. Uh, And so, you know, a date to restart service has yet to be determined in this most recent phase, but it could resume service as soon as June 1st. Um, And this was a reversal of the Bi-State Board's decision in January of 2020 to turn down a plea to take over operations for the trolley. So, again, there's been a lot of unrest in this, and there still is some, you know, quite a bit, really, of uncertainty about its future. Um, But it is a big step for Bi-State to be stepping in and making this commitment uh, on Friday, Bi-State CEO Talby Roach had some choice words for the trolley, uh, which had, had ridership far below expectations in its lone year of operation. Uh, Roach said, I'm not going to say that this is a super sound project. Look, its track record speaks for itself. I don't think he meant that pun. Yeah, I don't know that that pun was, or perhaps, uh, you know, intentional. Maybe. But um, with that said, he did address that, you know, this is defaulting on tens of millions of dollars in federal grants used to help build the $51 million line. Um, And that obviously could hurt efforts by the metro area and by state itself to get other federal funding moving forward. And that's really why they're, you know, one of the big reasons they are pursuing this is that they want to preserve, in Roach's words, that future federal funding. And that is so important to the area that I think even people who really have disliked the trolley project from the start can understand the need to protect that federal funding. We got this grant and the grant was for a specific purpose. We have to continue using um, what that grant built is the argument I think a lot of people would make about what has almost from the start been um, what many consider a pretty seriously flawed project. Yeah, and for listeners who are maybe a little bit less familiar with the loop trolley and why it's had uh, so many, again, roadblocks over the years, 
one of the big reasons that um, detractors uh, or critics point to with the loop trolley is that the um, the line of service that it provides one had already been covered by Metro with a with buses and um, MetroLink and MetroLink yeah parallel to it as well <laughs> um, so that there was you know maybe this was more of a vanity project that maybe this was more an aesthetic um, transportation project than one really developed to service uh, bus riders passengers in the city and that was also addressed uh, on Friday. So the only negative vote at Friday's teleconference meeting was from Derek Cox, uh, Madison County's lone representative on that 10-person uh, team, um, uh, that bi-state 10-person team. And Cox said that he was concerned that bi-state's own employees would be tapped to work on the trolley at a time when bus service, obviously, as we know, has been very reduced um, because of a shortage of drivers and mechanics. And these are similar problems that businesses and government entities, the state of Missouri, have been having in keeping, basically retaining and recruiting new employees. So this is not happening only to Bi-State, which is not at all. And, but it, you know, it's a, it's a concern. And especially we think this time of year, I mean, there's again, snow in the forecast this week, we're going to have low temperatures. We have folks having to wait at bus stops around town for an hour, hours to be able to um, get service. I see all the time on our um, social media pages uh, comments on stories about Bi-State and about the Lube Trolley and and um, anything involving local transit, municipal transit, the challenges that bus passengers are facing. Uh, that was, again, something that Cox spoke to directly in that board meeting, saying these are the passengers that don't have a car. They depend on the system. Uh, these are the folks who we're there to serve the most. Um, and while Roach acknowledged that that was true and that the loop trolley, again, doesn't maybe have the best track record, uh, again, to preserve that federal funding, they feel it's still worth the fight. So it'll be interesting to see. It will be interesting to see. And you mentioned comments you didn't know, but I I, I went through the comments on our website. Oh, and I wow. do this <laughs> I do this anyway. Part of my job is to, is to moderate those comments. But one of the commenters, I think, had a point that sums up what a lot of people think. Basically, commenter uh, Common Sense Returns said St. Louis taxpayers can now officially use the term trolleyed to describe wasteful projects <laughs> that provide benefit to no one. Um, oh. And I think that sums up what a lot of people in the area feel about the trolley. Have you ridden the trolley? I have not ridden the trolley. I haven't either. I have ridden the bus that services the museum to the loop. <laughs> that was before the trolley existed. Right. I I have I used to ride the bus home from high school. I have ridden Metrolink. I have not ridden the trolley. Um, I, I think that a lot of people, as you pointed out, it goes from one place with not a lot of parking to another place with not a lot of parking. So it's not even a good way to park your car and get somewhere easily. Uh, it does seem like Joe Edwards, who was the driving force behind this tourist attraction, um, he did so much work renovating the loop, and St. Louis has so much to thank him for that process. And I really do wonder um, if this is going to be the mark on his legacy. The, the trolley will be now in the lead of, of his, hopefully not coming very soon, but obituary as the man who saved the loop, but also gave us the trolley. Yeah, and you know, I think it's so complicated. Uh, The trolley, I really think is a case of best intentions gone wrong and not knowing always what we're getting into, right? I mean, we mentioned this earlier, 
one of the biggest barriers for the the trolley one in the beginning was getting the cars getting the cars on the tracks in a safe way obviously Mm -hmm. there were some accidents early on in the trolley's life that i think gave a lot of people pause about the viability of the the current track and the mechanics of the cars yes um and those aren't things that when you have this grander vision for what this thing could be you think about that you're you're not in the weeds on those logistics but it is those logistics that will prove whether or not this thing can survive and And bi-state is now kind of in charge of figuring that out which i don't envy that i don't envy that either and there are a lot of not a lot but there are several recent examples of trolley projects in other cities succeeding and doing really well and doing the types of things that streetcars used to do which was reduce our dependency on actual vehicles our own personal cars uh this project doesn't seem to have ever been intended to do that and um just you know it's a far cry from the streetcar system that used to serve st louis absolutely yeah i have an aunt who grew up in st louis city and she has these great memories of what a thriving public transit system we had with these similar types of streetcars and um and obviously you know when i'm sure just like me when you have friends coming out of town or family st louis is such an amazing vibrant city and there's so much to be able to promote here about why it's a great place to live but honestly one of the top things on my list of what's a detraction is the lack of public transit yes i mean it's so hard to convince people you have to own a car or two cars to live here you know, I, I don't like driving. I would love to catch up on, you know, news on my phone or read a book on my way to work. I can't afford a Tesla. Um, so for the, in the meantime, I have to drive, you know, it kind of forces that on you. Yes. Uh, and unfortunately, there are a lot of people who aren't even lucky enough to be able to afford a car and the maintenance of a car and the cost of a car. And we're doing them such a great disservice by not investing in thoughtful, usable uh, public transit. Yeah. And I do think underneath all of this is by state's concern they want to get there with it and they can't get there with it if they have this kind of, you know, the, the loop trolley is hanging over them and the lack of federal funding that that could create in the future. Um, that's just going to be a, a barrier they're going to have to overcome. Yes, definitely a barrier they're going to have to overcome. To pivot somewhat awkwardly maybe to our next topic, <laughs> because I feel like, you know, we could keep talking about the trolley for quite a while. Oh, the trolley could be a series easily. We, yes. Very easily. Um, And we do have way more information about the trolley, obviously, on the website, stltoday.com. But I also have to talk about Pam Hupp. Uh, For our listeners who don't recognize her name, uh, Google it. But also, I have a quick one-page summary that I wrote up. It's only one page. Uh, I I must say the font is a little big. You told me you fudged the margins a little. I did. I had to fudge (laughs) the margins. I have to, I'm going to try not to actually read it. But Pamela Hupp, um, her case has so many twists and turns that this is about as briefly as I can summarize it. Reporter Robert Patrick has followed this case for years. Uh, So, and he was also on a previous episode of this podcast to discuss more details. Um, So you can find that, I believe, on Apple Uh, podcast or wherever you find out this podcast um anyway back in december 2011 betsy faria was stabbed to death in lincoln county missouri her husband russell faria was charged and found guilty in november 2013 then he was sentenced to life, life in prison his attorney joel schwartz appealed and after a retrial was granted a judge found faria not guilty in november 2015 His attorney was allowed at the retrial to argue that Pamela Hupp, who was a good friend of Betsy Faria's, was a likely suspect. Basically, here's the reasonable doubt angle. 
Um, Hupp received life insurance money after Betsy Faria's death. She was a good friend who was the last person known to see Betsy Faria alive. In August, so Russell Faria uh, is freed from jail. He's no longer basically uh, a convicted criminal because his, uh, he was given a retrial. And then in August 2016, Louis Gumpenberger was shot and killed in Hupp's home. He had a traumatic brain injury. He also had physical limitations because of that. He had been in a car accident. Mm -hmm. Hupp was arrested pretty quickly, within a day or two, maybe the same day. She was charged with murder. She entered an Alfred plea in June 2019. An Alfred plea is kind of an unusual type of guilty plea. That means she admitted there was enough evidence to convict her, but she didn't admit guilt. So prosecutors said she planned the shooting of Louis Gumpenberger to frame Russell Faria for attempting to kill her. Hupp apparently drove around like trying to pick up random people, and she told them that she was going to be reenacting a 911 call for Dateline, a TV show that did several episodes about the Betsy Faria murder case. Mm -hmm. It goes on. Let me take a deep breath. Sorry. (laughs) Hupp is now serving life in prison. And in July 2021, a new prosecutor in Lincoln County charged her with first-degree murder in the death of Betsy Faria. There's going to be a TV show out about this. It starts next week. And I'm honestly intrigued by the TV show. It's definitely, the trailer has a very odd tone, I would say. It's almost a comedy, but this is about a murder. It's about the murder of... Potentially two people. I mean, Betsy Faria was murdered, uh, and Louis Gumpenberger was murdered. And yeah. Louis Gumpenberger still has a mother and a child who I believe live in the area. They're not getting any money from the miniseries, which raises some, you know, ethical questions. Yeah. No, absolutely. And that's a great summary of events. It's a complicated case, and one that I think at the time when it was unfolding, like you said, Beth. Hupp was not front and center the whole time. Um, she was a figure the whole time, but the way that her, that figure changed as the story developed took on like a really sinister and really um, upsetting, you know, devastating turn. And the the trailer is odd. I mean, I think Renee Zellweger uh, is playing Pam Hupp, and to do so is wearing some prosthetics uh, to make herself re- she, more resemble Pam Hupp. And she is unrecognizable as Renee Zellweger. And I, I... You know, there's always the idea that the actress uglifying herself to win awards. And I don't know that that's what's going on here. But her own uh, Warnos (laughs) effect. Yes. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's... And and like you said, the tone is uh, given... You know, I think we're at a point with true crime now where there's commentary being put on top of just not just recreating the events, but I'm sure that this is going to have some kind of commentary. Um, And it's tough because it's like you watch something like that that the tone doesn't feel straightforward, uh, dramatic. And it does feel to me a little bit insensitive to obviously the people whose lives were lost, but also their families who, you know, have to live on, have to keep living this trauma over and over again for the sake of this kind of consumption. So it's one thing to have to live through the media reporting on these facts, getting this information out to the public. But then you have, you know, all of these other types of uh, recreations popping up and episodes that are dedicated to it on podcasts that are focused on true crime. Um, And I I believe there might even be other work and development for Hup's story. I'm not sure about that. There are actually, I believe, two books 
coming out. Um, Russell Faria's attorney co-wrote a book, which is out today. It's waiting for me on my Kindle when I get home. Oh, wow. I, I know. I And as intrigued as I am, honestly, and I know so many of our readers are by this case, you do have to step back. And as a lot of people are currently questioning the, the craze for true crime, what is the impact on the survivors? Yeah. And how much do we owe them then? So I think this is just another example of that question in our society. We are going to talk more about Pamela Hupp in future episodes. I'm hoping to get Robert Patrick on. And I know that we're going to have more coverage, not only of the miniseries, but of the books in future um, newspapers. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and like you said, um, you know, something we'll touch on certainly in our conversation in the future with Robert Patrick, uh, our reporter who's covered this doggedly over the years, is, you know, should, and they are currently, um, the family members of, of those who were murdered be receiving any percentage of profits? Should they, you know, should they basically be able to be um, given, you know, if if not some sort of role in helping to executive produce to be able to have their family member's mm-hmm. side of the story better portrayed or have some level of input, even if it's only as a consultant, um, you know, in, um, included in the perspective of the, these uh, pieces of art, then should they also receive compensation for that? Right. One thing that um, Louis Gumpenberger's mother did is she has sued Pamela Hupp and she won a $3 million judgment against her. There's almost no way she's going to actually receive that amount of money. But it it does mean that Pamela Hupp herself can't profit from selling book or movie rights to her own story. Right. Um, well, yeah, we will definitely look forward to keeping listeners updated uh, as we learn more in the coming days and weeks. And now we're going to turn to our conversation with Josh. Yeah. They were acting against a state agency to compromise teachers' personal information in an attempt to embarrass the state and sell headlines for their news outlet. We will not let this crime against Missouri teachers go unpunished. And we refuse to let them be a pawn in the news outlet's political vendetta. That was Governor Mike Parson talking about the work of our colleague, Josh Renaud, who found a flaw, a security flaw, in a state website that was a database of teachers. We have Josh here with us right now to talk about uh, the governor's accusation against him and what has happened since then. Well, Josh, start out by telling us, and I know you probably can't get into the weeds on everything, but just to give people kind of a little bit of context for what happened, what were the steps that unfolded, again, that you can share with us that are already out there? Well, thanks for having me. Basically, I found a, a vulnerability in the uh, Department of Education uh, elementary and secondary education website that made it possible to get privately identifiable information about all the teachers who were in the the database that this form allowed you to search. It was a, a form that let you look at teacher certifications. And so we, we wrote a story about that you know, kind of confirmed all of the the different aspects of what we thought we had discovered and published a story. We had hoped to talk to the um to people from the state about the about what we had found. And uh they kind of as we were getting closer to publishing the the story, they 
something seemed to change and they were no longer willing to talk to us. Um, and so the next, uh, that evening, I should say, the state sent out uh, press releases to teachers across the state and administrators that talked about a hacker and um, and used some other language that was kind of alarming to us. And then the next morning, the governor held a press conference in which he uh, basically accused me of hacking their website uh, rather than engaging with the substance of what it was that we found, which was that the state had um, a website that was essentially leaking or making it possible to obtain private information for hundreds of thousands of, of teachers across the state. And this happened unknown to us on the heels of another security issue where uh, retired teachers' personal data was also exposed through a, a different website, a very different process. Yeah, it was it was something different, but it affected the same people, and we didn't know about it until till later. Um, as some of my colleagues were reporting, uh, we found a lot. Uh, there were a number of things that they found, kind of in the aftermath of this. You know, that the governor basically. Uh, called on the highway patrol to begin a criminal investigation of me. And so that's kind of what has been unfolding over these last months. Uh, but my, my colleagues like Kurt Erickson and Jack Suntrup uh, did further reporting on kind of some of the problems that have been happening um, in the state of Missouri related to infrastructure. There are a lot of outdated computer systems across the state they found. And sometimes that outdated infrastructures cause problems like with Medicaid expansion um, or in the uh, Department of Health and Senior Services when they were in the early stages of implementing COVID tracking. Mm -hmm. Some of those computer systems were, um, were a serious hangup. The, what you're talking about was um, apparently some kind of an intrusion. Someone got access to an email account in the the uh, pension system, the educator pension system. And that happened in September. And so the state was was investigating that and preparing to notify all the affected individuals uh, around the time that I found the vulnerability that I found. Which was in October? Which was in October, yeah. I think it published, like, on the, our story published the 13th or the 14th. So this, this other thing had happened back in September. And so actually the letter, if, if I, I may have my dates wrong, but I believe the letter they sent to the affected uh, teachers and educators and retirees about that September incident, that letter went out the same day that Governor Parson held his press conference. So they already knew um, at the time they held that press conference, they already knew that they had one bad data problem. Mm -hmm. And then I guess what I found was a further uh data lapse in a separate but related system that affected almost the same almost the same people yeah well josh tell us you know you're a reporter who in especially in the more recent years you spend your time behind the scenes you're working on uh, building websites you're working on coding you know you're not necessarily as front-facing as a lot of our reporters so what was this like for you to not just have this kind of blow up in such a very, very public way um, to process that. But, you know, what was that time like for you? Surreal, I'd imagine. Yeah, it was very surreal, certainly. Um, I think the thing that was so strange about it was um, just the vehemence with which the governor pursued this. And he, he doesn't know me at all. I doubt uh, that he'd ever read anything I'd written. So he certainly didn't know me, but that didn't stop him and his allies, uh, you know, like his PAC that put out this 
goofy um, uh, commercial. Yeah, they they basically tried to fundraise by calling you a criminal. Yeah, I think so. Um, and and you know, talking about like liberal journalists and stuff like that. And he, you know, they doing all that without actually knowing anything about me. And I, I think it just kind of speaks to where we're at that it that we go straight to demonizing and straight to um, you know dehumanizing people instead of you know, as a as a as a political you know for political expediency really that's what this was it was kind of political persecution with no consideration of who's the actual person what did they actually find the whole purpose I think was just to distract from the gravity of what what we what we found and and you think that as well because of the pension issue which was more of a what most people think of as a hacking as well as the vulnerability that you had found in the system combined those two things are very serious yeah i think those two things happening uh, in such close proximity to each other certainly um should should have raised a lot of eyebrows and um should have should cause some kind of action you know, to take place. Um, the thing is that this isn't happening in a vacuum. Just a couple of years ago, I noted in my original story, uh, the state auditor's office did audits of both DESI and local school districts. DESI is the Department of Secondary, Elementary and Secondary Education. Yes, yes. Uh, the And they're the ones who hosted this form where I found the vulnerability. And so just a few years before this, um, the state auditor had called attention to some of their data keeping practices with regard to students. Not uh, this is a student system rather than the teacher system uh, that that where I found something, mm-hmm. and they they had a bunch of recommendations for Desi, uh, which I believe they uh, mostly followed through on on working on, like including a comprehensive policy on responding to data breaches. But I think it just goes to show this is a, a serious thing that people have been looking at, but maybe it need, you know, maybe it needs even more attention than, than it has really gotten. The governor was trying to distract from that far larger issue. Do you think? I mean, I can't, I can't know his intention. Right. And I don't, it's, you know, it's possible he just got bad advice and doubled down on it. You know, I I can't really know, but all the, the timing of all this certainly looks like um, trying to save face when um, when there was bad news coming instead of doing the right thing, which would have been to apologize and say, we got this wrong, but we're going to be sure to fix it mm-hmm. and it's not going to happen again. You know, that would have been the approach that I would have expected him to take, uh, but they, they did not. Well, and Josh, tell us, what was the public response? So did you feel like, I know internally, I hope you felt a lot of support and the paper was definitely there with its legal team, making sure that you were well represented. Um, I'd like to believe that, you know, all of us in the newsroom were also that source of support. But publicly, you know, what were you hearing? How did that feel? Yeah, well, I I certainly felt supported and loved uh, by my colleagues and friends and family. And that was a, I mean, really, that's what carried me through. And I did get a lot of, a lot of positive support from folks. I mean, one of the tricky things about this story is that it's not something that is easily understood by people. And so uh, like when we were writing the original version of the story, that that was among the considerations as we were, as I was writing, it was making it understandable, but also um, the need to not get into details in order to protect, um, 
you know, people's information. We didn't want to detail what the vulnerability was. And, and before we published the story, Dusty was able to pull the website down. Right, yes. So the database yes. wasn't accessible, and they have since fixed this issue. Yeah, no, they, yes, exactly. They pulled the website down uh, when we told them about it, and they we gave them time to perform a scan of um, you know the rest of, of their databases to make sure that there was not similar problems. And then we took, you know, we took great pains to make sure that we weren't describing in detail what this was so that people could uh, exploit it in some way, if, if, if there had been some other system that had the, the same problem. Oh, just just to go back. Yeah, so so this was this is a hard maybe a story that was hard, difficult for people to understand, and I think the also the initial letter from from the state was very confusing and, and in some ways misleading, and so I think a lot initially, a lot of people didn't know what was going on, and mm-hmm. they thought there had been a hack. There was no hack. There was I had found a vulnerability and told the state about it, and and. And so a lot of people were maybe confused, a lot of the teachers who received this information. And so, uh, but as we continued reporting and other outlets also began looking into this because, you know, because the governor's actions drew attention, more attention to it. Right. Um, then, then there started to be a broader understanding of what had happened. And I, I did get a lot of, a lot of really supportive messages from uh, teachers and from people around the country. And um, it was, that was very encouraging. That's wonderful that you got so much support. Um, I'm glad to hear, as a co-worker, I'm glad to hear that you felt that support from the newsroom because oh, I yeah, know yeah. Um, people were concerned and confused. And the broader concern, I think, for a lot of journalists is the feeling that person came after the journalism instead of fixing that problem. Yeah, and you know, you were doing your job and you were doing it in the most ethical, forthright way that one could while trying to essentially serve the people of Missouri, the teachers of Missouri in this case, uh, which is what we all strive to do every day, right? Service journalism um, to help our community. So to then have the governor come out and say that, you know, in his initial statement, you're not a victim in this. How did that feel? Oh, yeah. It, I mean, it, it was hard. And I mean, it was just more for me, it was just disbelief. I um, and yet, even though I say that, like the signs have been there for a while that this is kind of a direction that um, a particular political party has been moving in the last few years. And so, um, you know, the previous president went to great lengths to um, insult the press and to cast them as the bad guy at every opportunity to call them, even to to use dehumanizing language like "enemy of the people." Um, And so, you know, there's always been this, there can be an adversarial relationship between the press and people in power, because part of what we do is hold them to account. Um, You know, we talk about like accountability journalism. And and that's an important part of of what we do. Um, So yeah, there can be an adversarial uh, relationship there. But to actually accuse somebody of a crime when it's clear that no crime was committed and to target them with an investigation that, you know, effectively silences them and maybe serves as a, like a chill or a deterrent to other journalists. I mean, I think that's wrong. And uh, honestly, I don't think the people of Missouri should tolerate it. Yeah. Well, what very well said. Um, I think we also wanted to chat about obviously the, the news that the Cole County prosecutor announced last week that there will be no charges in the case. And, 
you posted a beautifully written personal statement after those events. It may have been at this point two weeks ago for our listeners uh, about how this situation was an opportunity for the governor to admit a mistake and apologize. Um, Have you heard anything from the governor or his office as of today? Oh, no. No, I haven't. Um, But, you know, the opportunity is still there. Um, It's never too late to change course. And, you know, when you notice that something is wrong and you can still take the opportunity to to try and fix it. What would, I'm sorry, what would an apology right now mean to you from the governor? um, I think it would be an opportunity. It would give me closure. Um, You know, we have the investigative report is out um, and the the prosecutor made his decision. Uh, So all of those things have been, those have been super helpful uh, for me personally in terms of getting to closure I think an apology from the from the governor would really cement that and allow me to move on. But you know, I'm not expecting it, and um, and I'm you know, I'm I'm moving on anyway, with or without that. But I think more, even more than like what it means to me, I think it would be meaningful for the people of the state to see a leader be accountable, be humble, and and um, you know, really do the right thing. Yeah, and we saw this with uh, Parsons. Uh, health director nominee that the governor the governor had nominated someone who was kind of erroneously accused of being pro mask mandate pro vaccine mandates and the governor by his own party it created this gop infighting um in the missouri legislature and the governor came out with a kind of a bulldog statement about how this is a person who he shares values with and they don't this um potential uh, you know director did not deserve this kind of an attack. I can only imagine in kind of the shadow of what you had just been through, how that may feel and how you may feel that the governor should be able to connect those two threads, right? That no person deserves that kind of public attack uh, for just doing their job. Yeah, no, you, you said it very well there. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, the um, you're exactly right. Nobody deserves to be treated like that. And um, I hope that the governor and other politicians in our state could see that right now. And I think the governor has a chance to set the tone at the top, uh, whether he takes it or not, you know, that's, that's up to him. But, but we are in a, we are living in a political climate right now where I think a lot of people would love to see change from the way things are being done. We also wanted to ask you, you know, your, your personal statement that you issued after the Cole County prosecutor decided not to charge you, um, quoted from the Gospels, and you're, you've been really outspoken about your Christian faith, and the governor has as well. So, if if you could leave listeners with kind of some thoughts on how your faith relates to this ordeal, as well as the governor. Um. Well, I can't really speak to the. I mean, I don't know the governor. I just know the. Th- some of the things that he said i speaking only for myself what it's meant for me is that you know he's the governor and uh i think as a christian i I believe that the gospels are really clear about when you're mistreated that that you respond by praying for a blessing for the person who's mistreating you and that's a hard thing to do um and and you know also talks you know talks about forgiveness the importance of forgiveness i can't expect anything from the governor and Mm -hmm. i don't expect anything from him um all i can control is is my own reaction to to what happened 
And I would say definitely that my faith through this time has has helped me not lose my mind. Yeah. Definitely. And when you talk about that kind of, you know, I, I totally agree with you that I think there is this deep yearning for people to not feel so divided, to feel that we can understand one another and treat one another like humans. And the specific, I think it was um, Matthew 544 that you had quoted in your personal statement, bless those who curse you. Like, wow, what a, you know, a strong uh, and I think very needed thing to hear right now, but what a hard thing to live. So for other people who maybe are struggling with that in, in their lives, just from your own personal experience, you know, how did that get you through? I mean, in my life, I've been picked on in the, you know in the past i think everybody has and th- this is the this is not the first time that i've done this and i know in the past it was hard but it worked for me and so um you know i knew that in this situation even though it, maybe it was it's kind of a, a lot of a lot of things that we read in the in the gospels are kind of um they go against what our nature is and like what what you naturally might want to do and everything about the situation made me angry <laughs> and um, course, yeah yeah you know but but the actions i wanted to take were not were ones that were not actions out of anger and um so you know i i i think i've come through it and uh and and kept my head and and hopefully kept my dignity and and so i i think i can be proud of that yeah, well, and we're so proud to work with you. And I think that kind of <laughs> that dovetails well, we into are. something we also wanted to chat about, which is kind of those silver linings. That is one that your faith was able to get you through this and may, may really able to guide you in how you even personally, if not professionally, dealt with this situation. And, you know, I know you're involved to some degree with STEM robotics education, that you're passionate about being able to help educate this next generation in this space that you're so um, an ex- expert at and that you have dedicated your career to. But you also mentioned earlier that this event could discourage maybe some other journalists, certainly if you're a student studying the kind of work that you do right now, mm-hmm. um, it could be scary to them. So what would be some feedback you would give them? Yeah, um, so I, I coach, a, I started coaching uh, a robotics team at Vote Elementary, which is in uh, Ferguson Florissant School District in 2016. And they participate in First Lego League, uh, which cool. is a really... That sounds really cool. <laughs> it is. It is. It is really cool. The, the kids, um, each year there's a new challenge. They have to do a research project, and then they have to build a robot. Out, out of Legos. Out of Legos, yeah, using Lego Mindstorms and Lego Technic pieces. And um, it needs to be programmed to perform different missions kind of autonomously. So they, they write a program, then they push a button, and then it goes and does its thing. And uh, it can be really frustrating um, one of the, th- I think one of the things you really learn doing that is the engineering process of brainstorming ideas and, um, and then trying the different ideas uh, to solve a problem and see w- which of them actually works the best, what right. solves the problem the best. And, um, and then, you know, teamwork and all that stuff. And all the kinds of skills that I would love to see more of from uh from our politicians you know (laughs) rather than the politically expedient thing to do i think um if we could see more of that uh problem solving and working together i think that would really be a great thing but to get to the really what you're asking about the um i don't know how many students are really well aware of this this story i hope it won't be discouraging to them but i think you know what the governor did his actions really 
probably will have a chilling effect on on uh, both in journalism and in like reporting bugs and mm-hmm. um, serious data vulnerabilities in the state. And I think that's really unfortunate. Um, but I hope that it is something where the governor could. There's a positive action he could take to maybe mitigate some of that. You know, if he were like we talked about to to admit a mistake and say, hey, look, my reaction to this was wrong. And I recognize that now we want people to come forward and report these uh, these issues when they find them. You know, if if you were to do something like that, I think that could go a long way towards fixing that that potential problem. But I hope, you know, I've known so many students through through that work in robotics um, who they're just so cool and they come up with such great ideas and we need them. We need those. Yeah. We need kids to develop that kind of mindset and grow up to be, um, you know, future leaders who are um, who can tackle whatever whatever problems and issues the future holds. Um, those the kinds of kids I had on my team. Those are the those are the kinds of people that I hope uh, will grow up to to do those kinds of things. Yeah, we did have a couple of questions off from Twitter. Um, I'm, I may not pronounce this man's name correctly, but Russell Neese wanted to know, basically. People who have followed you on Twitter know that you love retro technology and old software, um, and you do, I'm going to mispronounce it, A-S-C-I-I portraits, or do you say ASCII? Oh, uh, ASCII and ANSI, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, did that have any role in your current work, or did you get interested in that because of your current work? I mean, I've always been kind of a geeky sort of guy, I guess, and um, always been kind of growing up all my computer stuff was sort of hand me down so I was mm-hmm. always maybe one or two generations behind whatever was the state Same. of the art <laughs> uh, so for that reason I've always loved the older stuff and now that I'm a grown up you know some people when I was growing up I, I would see like grown ups who were into cars you know um, getting old you know 60s Corvettes or you know whatever and so for me I'm, I'm interested in old computers mm-hmm. and especially the um Make doing new things with old stuff because uh, with the internet, when I was growing up in the 80s and the early 90s, the World Wide Web wasn't really a thing yet that um, that was accessible to regular people. And so we, we would call bulletin boards. Uh, a person might have a computer at their home, hook it up to a modem, and then anyone could call your computer and do the things that we now do like on Facebook or Reddit, you know, write emails to each other, post public messages, share files play games. Um, but these were, of course, very archaic games and, uh, you know, no no uh, fancy photos or anything like that. It was Just all, a side scrolling. All text. Everything was plain text oh, on, on the bulletin boards. Um, but, but you can run a bulletin board today and you can kind of connect it to the modern stuff that we have. For example, like um, one little project that I did a while back was taking... Um, polling data from 538.com in the presidential race mm-hmm. and making that display like on an old-fashioned bulletin board. So it was getting data from a modern data source but showing it in a like an old an old kind of way. And so I think it's really fun to do that. And I think in terms of like how it impacts my work, you know, I think about um, Mr. Rogers. Uh, I'm a big fan of Mr. Rogers from growing up and when I had kids we would watch Mr. Rogers together. And um, he he off he liked to talk about play as being the work of children. So uh, play was like this important work that children do that helps them grow up. And as they play and pretend, it's preparing them for adulthood. 
And I think you could go farther than that and say that play is actually important for adults too. Um, You know, like getting into that imaginative space where you're being creative and where you're thinking about things in a different way. Um, You know, like we were talking about brainstorming in the engineering process. Well, I think just that creativity that comes from playing or doing something with a hobby, um, it kind of sharpens your your skill set. And for me, that's totally true. Some of the things that I've done over the years, just kind of fooling around for my hobby, have been things that kind of, you know, made me a better journalist or um, or maybe a better artist or you know whatever. So definitely, I think playing and and hobby work has um, has helped me in my professional work. Yeah, definitely. And um, the other another Twitter user Emily Jane Hub wants to know what your handle, which is at Kirkman, refers to. Uh, okay, so it's I've had that used that handle for a very long time. Uh, when I first started calling St. Louis bulletin boards uh, around 1992, um, I was Captain Kirk. And what I didn't realize, because I was just a kid, was that there were plenty of other Captain Kirks out there. <laughs> and so uh, I needed a way to kind of distinguish myself from the other ones. And people started calling me Kirk Man. Uh, and it just kind of stuck. And so I've used that for emails and stuff over the years. And um, I, what I didn't realize was that, that there were a few other Kirkmans or Kirkmans or however you want to pronounce it um, who actually have that as their name who are kind of famous, including the the guy who does The Walking Dead. And so oh, no. when that show was at kind of the peak of its popularity, I used to get a lot of <laughs> tweets uh, that were intended for somebody else, but that came came to me because I had the the Twitter handle. So. Right, asking you like, what's happening next week on The Walking Dead? <laughs> yeah, mo- actually, more mostly complaining. Uh, no. Or <laughs> oh no, Twitter loves yeah. Yes, tw- yeah, definitely. Co- the complaints would roll in. I don't want to put you on the spot, and if the answer is no, that's fine. Do you have a William Shatner impersonation? No, no, I, <laughs> I don't. But I really appreciate uh, watching watching William Shatner. So I, I, my favorite Star Trek is the original. I feel like that there's just no improving on that. See, I'm although a next generation girl, well, there's but... room for all, all of them. But there's just the purity of that, especially the first two seasons or first season, I guess. Um, so I don't know if you have a favorite episode or any like fun Star Trek trivia or anything to share with listeners. Oh well, yeah. I mean, I love the original. I love Deep Space Nine. Um, actually, Deep Space Nine is one of my favorites. And rewatching Deep Space Nine, um, there are a lot of resonances for me. I live in Ferguson, and like the the episode Far Beyond the Stars, which kind of uh, in which the Captain Cisco, who's the the main the lead character of that show, and he's a, a black father, a widow. Um, which is an important part of his story. And Deep Space Nine has a lot of strong family stuff mm-hmm. um, yeah. as opposed to most of the other Star Treks, which didn't really do a good job of showing family relationships. So as a family guy myself, I really related to that show a lot. Um, but there was this episode, Far Beyond the Stars, which dealt with racism um, closer to like the turn of the 20th century um, when pulp magazine, sci-fi magazines mm-hmm. were there. And it kind of imagined him as if he had been a black writer trying to make his way in this white dominated world and that episode just resonated so strongly with me 20 years after it came out you know sort of in the aftermath of ferguson um that's one that that really um has stuck with me you also did a list i think of some of your favorite star trek episodes oh yeah yeah for the 50th anniversary of star trek uh we did uh we did 50 things i love about star trek that was it. yeah yeah so i had to go through and revisit all the the star treks that existed um there's been a whole bunch more series since since we did that list um uh 
yeah and so there would be even more content to do now but i've i've been so busy lately i haven't really followed the any of the new series that they've done the last couple years we keep you busy around here. yes yes you do yeah well that's understandable um and we'll definitely push to that list in uh, podcast notes and on the site so that uh reader listeners and readers can enjoy it um but josh uh, thank you so much i could talk about star trek all afternoon but i know you have to get back to it um we really really <laughs> appreciate you taking the time and so so value the work that you do here it's really a privilege and an honor to work alongside you and um you know, through this whole ordeal, again, I think you really just showed so much um, composure. Composure. I was going to also say compassion. You know, I think, again, like you mentioned earlier, our reaction when someone attacks us, I think, is defense. And I think you really shared with people a really lovely and a really needed uh, way to respond to, you know, when someone is not very nice to you, <laughs> that sometimes uh, blessing them instead of cursing them is the better response. Well, thank you so much both for having me. I really, really appreciate it. And that's a wrap. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Inside the Post-Dispatch. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Josh as much as we did, as well as our chatter about the Loop Trolley and Pam Hupp. Expect updates on all of those stories in future episodes. Next week, though, we're talking to reporter Blythe Bernhard about the story and legacy of the desegregation program in public schools in the St. Louis area. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. Please share your story ideas and questions, including for Blythe next week, by reaching out to us at stltoday.com slash news tips. Thanks so much and have a great week. Bye.